episode 5 of the UC Architects. I'm Steve Goodman and this is episode 5, recorded on the 10th of August 2012. This week I'm joined by Justin Morris, Michelle DeRoy, Joanne Veldhuis, Stole Hansen, uh, and you'll find information and links for each of us on the website. Justin, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks Dave, uh, good to be on again. So, what have you been up to since you've last been on? Uh, I've just been plugging away at uh, another customer site that, that I've been uh, consistently tasked on since about January this year of uh, a bit of a long-term uh, voice deployment. Uh, Enterprise voice, uh, all link all the way? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a, um, <clears throat> a pilot group of uh, their entire estate within the firm, uh, but they're just sort of testing the waters now with a, a view to moving to full production, uh, hopefully next year maybe. Fantastic. Anything uh, uh, planned for the next few weeks along those lines? Is it the, the same project? Um, hopefully be uh, rolling off this one and um, getting into some new challenges uh, end of August, uh, start of September maybe. So um, be uh, quite exciting actually to uh, get into something a bit new. Uh, if people haven't listened to the podcast before, uh, uh, tell us a, a little bit about yourself. You're uh, a Link MVP, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm a Link MVP, um, newly newly christened, and um, I work for Modality Systems uh, as a consultant, and I do a lot of uh, UC architecture, mainly working with Link and uh, design and implementation. Um, originally from Australia, I've uh, been in the UK for three years now, and um, yeah, I'm sort of uh, Link all the way, really. Fantastic. And uh, Michelle, uh, welcome to the show. Hello, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's the first time we've been on the podcast together, isn't it? Yeah, first time, Steve. Yeah, uh, what have you been up to over the last few weeks then, since uh, you were on, on last the the last exchange podcast? Well, I'm inclined to say the usual. That means uh, exchange projects, uh, doing a little bit of uh, link design uh, work for a small local uh, government organization at the moment. And uh, yeah, it's also holiday season, so it's a bit slow at the moment. But things are picking. Picking up in the next few weeks, uh, I hope. Yeah, I've, I've been doing a migration project and uh, everyone is on holiday, which uh, makes things a, a little bit more interesting. Yeah, but it's expected, so. Yeah. Uh, if people haven't uh, listened to you on the, the last podcast, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm Michel de Roy. I um, work at uh, Innovative uh, as a uh, UC consultant. Uh, mainly doing work on exchange projects, design, implementation, um, as a sidetrack, doing uh, link, uh, link stuff. And also, uh, yeah, that's mostly part of the job, uh, uh, things around Active Directory or scripting. So, that's... Uh, oh, thanks very that's much. It. And, Joanne, uh, how are you? Hi, Steve. Fine, I'm fine. Thank you, I'm good. Have you been busy? Uh, yeah, I've been busy. I've been busy with a proof of concept for our link to uh, replace our, our Mitel uh, PBX. So we're uh, yeah, pretty. I've made uh, pretty some progress uh, in the, the last week. And customers pretty happy with it, so looks very good. Uh, and if people haven't heard you on the podcast before, uh, tell us a, a little bit about yourself. Uh, you're an Exchange yeah. MVP. Yeah, I'm uh, Johan Veldhuis. I uh, work at uh, Communicative. I'm doing uh, most exchange jobs. Um, yeah, with that uh, some some link stuff. So I'm 
I'm um, busy with uh, implementing, designing, migrating, and that kind of stuff. How long have you been working with Link? Well, I think from the beginning of Link. So it's, yeah, yeah well, I've worked with previous versions, uh, OCS 2007 and 2007 R2. So, uh, so well. So you're not just an exchange guy. Uh, the exchange MVP title uh, shouldn't fool anyone. No, no. Not, not, not total exchange, but uh, yeah, well, I mostly concentrate on exchange because yeah. I like exchange. Uh, yeah, it's a great product. Same here. And Stole, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you, and uh, thanks for having me. Uh, what have you been up to over the last few weeks? Well, since uh, the last time we were on the podcast, I've actually been on uh, vacation uh, for once. Oh, and anyway, uh, nice. Yeah, and and um, the great thing was that Microsoft released all the link and exchange previews the first day of my vacation. That was, thank you, Microsoft. <laughs> but uh, were you anywhere with internet connectivity? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I didn't have uh, much connectivity, so uh, it was quite a pain. But yeah, I managed. The vacation. The night that they released everything, I was in a, a hotel with only a three G dongle for bandwidth, and yep. I still tried to download the. Exchange 2013 bits. Yep. Uh, very of slowly. course you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't my 3G dongle, I must add. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, but I don't think I'll get away with that when I go on holiday. So I hope they don't release anything at the beginning of September. Uh, I'm glad it's only a matter of days until Windows uh, 8 and Windows Server 2012 come out, and I can have a, a play with those bits before I go away. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Uh, and if uh, if people haven't heard you on the podcast before, uh, just uh, introduce yourself quickly, if that's all right. Yep. Uh, my name is Tola Hansen, and uh, I work as a chief consultant and UC architect at uh, Atia in Norway. I've uh, been working with Lynx since 2006, and uh, been there since LCS and OCS, and, and now uh, Link. And uh, yeah, been uh, working on a big project for the past year, so still doing that. More in the documentation and education phase uh, of the project. So that's a little bit about me. Well, thanks very much. Uh, so today on the show, uh, we're going to be talking uh, through a number of topics. We're going to be talking about the release of Outlook.com, uh, the new Hotmail, uh, and its effects on Exchange Online. Uh, there's some Office 365 changes as well, especially with the DirSync, and we're going to be covering what that uh, enables people to do now. Uh, still on Exchange, we're also going to talk about DAGs and single DAGs and active-active and why that's a, a bad thing. And mixing in Link and Exchange together, we're going to be talking about publishing EWS, uh, especially for Link uh, with TMG, both... Uh, best practices and the authentication scenarios. Perhaps uh, looking as well at what's going to happen if uh, and when TMG becomes de-emphasized as a product. And finally, the troubleshooting tools in Link 2013, including the centralized logging. But first up, we're going to be talking about the Microsoft Exchange Conference, uh, which quite a few of our podcast members are going to. I am sadly not, but I would love to be going because the sessions have been announced and boy, there is a lot of them. Uh, we literally, this is possibly more than tech ed <laughs> uh, I've, and 
in the background, Pat Richards, who's on our podcast, but listening in, mentions everyone except me is going, yes, we know that I'm not going. Uh, but there's absolutely tons of sessions, and it, it is absolutely amazing. Uh, Paul Cunningham of Exchange Server Pro tweeted the same thing that I thought when I saw these sessions. He's not going either, and it was like I could cry when I saw them. Uh, absolutely tons of them. Uh, there's sessions on the new apps for Outlook and OWA, archiving in the new Exchange, uh, hybrid deployments and how that's really, really integrated tightly with Exchange 2013. Uh, all stuff about deployment, coexistence, high availability, monitoring, management, security, data governance, e-discovery, uh, then deep dives into all the different roles, the new client access front-end role, uh, the database and store enhancements, uh, how to integrate it with Exchange 2007, absolutely tons of stuff. This is probably going to be the conference that if you miss it like I do, you're going to spend a lot of time catching up on these topics. It's it's actually amazing. And even if you're not looking at uh, 2013 right away, there's tons of topics are uh, mostly presented by Exchange MVPs on uh, Exchange 2010 as well, uh, and older versions. So it's it's not just uh, for for people looking at 2013. This is really going to be the conference of the year if you have anything to do uh, with Exchange 2010, Exchange 2013. It's absolutely es essential. Uh, but moving swiftly on, on to the topics today. Uh, some of the bigger changes. Hotmail has released the preview of its new version. And it's not great if you're an Office 365 customer uh, or you're using Link Federation. Uh, if you don't know already, if you're an Office 365 customer, a live edu customer, uh, you're also mixing on the same domain as Hotmail customers as well. Uh, we noticed this a, a few weeks ago and Pat brought it up as a, a great topic for us to talk about uh, and I gave it a, a bit of a test myself. I noticed that uh, if you do switch your Hotmail address to the Outlook.com domain, and then try and sign into your Office 365 account, you won't be able to get back into your Hotmail address until you close your browser and go back in. And Justin also noticed some issues uh, as well uh, related to Link. Yeah, so um, one thing that actually Tom brought to our uh, attention within Modality recently was that um, Outlook.com uh, is not going to be completely uh, up to scratch with public IM connectivity with Link right now. Um, and so it's 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 not enabled out of the box. So if you go and add a Outlook a user with a at Outlook.com CPURI to your uh, link contact list, um, it, it won't work right now. All right, so that doesn't work if you bought the username and then put it in in brackets or anything like that. It just doesn't work. Full stop. Yeah, I mean the advice that we've received from Microsoft is that that's not enabled right now. Um, but they, um, to quote, expect this to occur in the near future. What are they expecting to happen uh, when people switch uh, their addresses across, and uh, especially if they change the Windows Live ID? Will that automatically work, or will that just break? Um, no, I mean, based on the blog post on the, uh, the sort of OCS, the next top blog, this week um, the advice is that uh, link deployments will be able to federate with users on Outlook.com um, and that no additional configuration changes will be required. So... I would expect that if you're a uh, federating with an existing hotmail.com contact and yeah. you choose to use that outlook.com contact, it will probably 
they'll obviously create a duplicate, but um, it's, you'll be able to at least federate with that Outlook.com contact. Yeah. Uh, I wonder how that's going to work when people are using Outlook.com uh, and using uh, the, the link web app components in OWA. Uh, that's going to be interesting because they're going to be using that from the Outlook.com domain. That's, I'm guessing that won't affect anything at all. It, it'll just be a bit strange. Yeah, it's it's sort of like as all of these products start to work more closely together, um, a lot of the interoperability scenarios are not quite bettered down yet. Uh, in general, though, does do you think it's a good strategy for Microsoft uh, consolidating both their consumer and business lineups onto a single uh, domain? I think it's it's kind of here nor there, really. It's like. Uh, they're trying to differentiate between Skype and Link, but then, you know, with the, the consumer and uh, and corporate brands, uh, and now they're sort of bringing together Outlook.com to, to bring the two together, it sort of um, sends a bit of a mixed message. Uh, I, I think it's uh, a stupid idea. Uh, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I just don't see the point. Uh, Google have absolutely failed at differentiating their free business... Uh, I'm even mixing them up here. They're free consumer products with their enterprise products. Uh, they're the same product. Uh, why? Were, what's the value in in having it apart from it being on your own domain? Uh, and from a layman's perspective, people are going to think Outlook.com uh, and Office 365 are the same thing. They they look similar, uh, especially with the the 2013 lineup. So convincing someone that they're not actually getting Hotmail when they move to Office 365 might be more difficult. Yeah, I think I think there'll definitely be like a, a brand differentiation thing there because like people typically consider Hotmail as like the consumer thing, like you know the hot, you know people have had Hotmail addresses since they were like ten, twelve years old, you know. Yeah. So, so moving that across to this more polished, um, uh, sort of perception is going to mix the waters a bit more, and I think they'll need to do a lot of work in um, sending out a clear message to the public as to what is meant to be used by what kind of customer. Um. The thing about Microsoft is they don't communicate that kind of stuff very well. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, it's, I, I, can, I can see people saying, these are the same products. I, I don't see the difference. Why can I do this in, in one product? Why can I import my contacts one way? And on the same domain, my work email looks kind of the same, but it just blatantly doesn't work. Uh, who's to blame for that? Uh, Microsoft... Uh, have taken a fair bit of flack on some of their product uh, product forums for uh, Outlook Live, which is also on the Outlook.com domain and uh, is the underpinnings for Live at EDU with confused students uh, who don't understand that it's different to Hotmail. Uh, they sign in with a Windows Live ID to that and they get a, an Exchange Online account. And it's just going to be more of the same, I think. It's It's obviously a good strategy to consolidate things onto a single set of domains but it's it is going to be confusing i can imagine scenarios like the the person who logs onto their personal email at work it's perfectly fine and then they try and go into the office 365 email and then they can't get back in that's the first thing i noticed and i thought that was not very good at all uh it's there's, especially as one was using a microsoft uh, online services ID, the other was using Windows Live ID, which th they should both be able to be open at the same time. Uh, and sh showing it as a preview product, saying, yeah, it's it's not 100% product uh, polished yet, 
uh, simple things should work. Yeah, I mean, you would expect that, like, there should be some really clear comms being sent mm. out to the public about this so that, um, the, the, as you said, like, we don't get into these usage scenarios where one thing works and then you have to sign out to get another thing to work and yeah. there's this little confusion and stuff. Um, there's definitely, a, I think, a better story to be told. Yeah, I, I mean, one thing I saw on the day that they uh, released this preview, uh, an email went out to Live Edu customers uh, saying, quick, quick, you've got to start moving people to use the proper Office 365 type address, outlook.com slash OWA slash yourdomain.edu. Because for years prior to this, they've been told to go to outlook.com and been putting redirects on, on their university and college websites to say, right, email, here it is, it's outlook.com, uh, educating users that that was the address. And Microsoft had sort of pushed them slightly and said, you know, sometime over the next six months, we might be moving you to Office 365, so you will have to consider this. Then, bam, all of a sudden, they release a new product and the login page for literally millions uh, of students who, okay, the, the organizations are getting that email for free, but it's still a big change that they didn't let those organizations know about and they're people that they spent years trying to convince not to use the free equivalents from Google. Yeah, that's uh it's really a valid case you make there, Steve. That's um yeah, quite epic. Uh, so I, I I'm not gonna say it's a good thing. Uh I maybe long term, uh it it will be. I I I will probably in a year from now uh, think that it was the best thing that they ever did. <laughs> but right now I I think communication is is key uh, i mean there was a, a an ask reddit uh or uh there was an ask reddit forum type conversation with the outlook.com developers and the scale that they don't understand the office 365 and live edu side of it was really apparent in there because there's a lot of students who use websites like reddit and they were asking questions so what so does my university email move to this no outlook.com is only for consumer email that's that's a mixed message uh, when those students probably were using outlook.com for for their email and that's why they're ask, asking the question uh, but yeah i think i've probably done uh done that to death <laughs> uh, yeah but but that's what you mentioned it's yeah quite strange that this happens because Normally, Microsoft has a good policy of marketing and that kind of stuff, and yeah, the, these kind of basic things, which uh, which I think these problems are. Yeah, I I, I can't uh, understand why they didn't test it or didn't think about it and inform their customers about it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but sticking on the Office 365 topic, we do have some good news. Uh, it's it's not all bad and broken. Uh, Dersync, if you use it, is the uh, synchronization software that runs on an uh, on-premises on uh, server and synchronizes your local Active Directory with Office 365. Uh, by default, and the only way it's been supported has been to synchronize your entire Active Directory forest uh, up to Office 365. Uh, you don't have to license everything at the other end, but you, if you are only going to do one domain, then you might end up with three other domains that have uh, at least the contact records inside Office 365 that you didn't necessarily want to do. And the Dersync software is based upon a Forefront Identity Manager. Uh, so you can open up the user interface for that 
and you can go in and unselect the other domains that you don't want to use. But until uh, very recently, uh, literally within the last week, that has been unsupported. And the reason it's been unsupported, and the reason you need to still bear in mind, is that if you move someone out of one of those OUs uh, that is selected into one that isn't selected, it's going to remove that uh, Microsoft Online Services ID and the underlying Exchange and, and Link accounts on Office 365 at the same time. But that is now supported. You can do it as long as you're aware of the caveats with it. I think that's quite a good move, uh, especially if you're working with customers uh, or yourself building uh, test environments where you don't want to synchronize the entire forest. Uh, but is it going to have any practical use in the field, uh, in production environments? Yeah, I think it's a good. Uh, I, don't, I don't understand why it's supported now because it's pretty took pretty long before they supported it, and yeah, in most environments it's uh, yeah it's a pain in the ass that you officially can't uh, modify the uh, the dirsing filtering because service accounts etc are also pushed in the cloud and that's something that you don't want to move to the cloud because it's our service accounts for local applications or services. I mean, I don't think you can, uh, at the moment, edit the, the provisioning rules so it excludes like, prefixes you've already got for service accounts, though. Uh, you just yeah. have to exclude the entire OU that you, you keep service accounts yeah. in. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's pretty strange that it's, yeah, well, how long is the Dersync utility, uh, how long is ago when the Dersync utility is released? Well, it's... Well, pretty long time ago. I don't understand why they now support it officially. Because I think because a lot of customers complain about it. Just uh, that's just a, just a wild guess. I mean, I I, I think uh, more than just filtering based on on OU or domain. It would be uh, it, it would be great to to see a little bit more customization uh, for Dersync. Uh, to be available and supported, uh, it, it, unless, as I understand it, there's a, a diff different management agents that Microsoft can implement themselves, but partners and customers can't implement those management agents that give you the, the full customization. Uh, so uh, rather than just give us snippets now, uh, I, it, I think it would be really good if Microsoft can can say, right, this is what's going to be uh, completely supported and we're not going to add anything in the future uh, because then we can go into deployments uh, with our eyes completely open. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. If I may add something to that uh, contribution of uh, Johan. That customers who uh, weren't really happy with the all or nothing uh, type of synchronization and yeah, we had customers who did the, the trick what normal people would do, in my opinion, is uh, just do the filtering. And when they had to raise a support case or something, they started up the synchronization again and disabled it afterwards. But there wasn't really, yeah. That's, um, that's an interesting approach. Unsu unsupported but understandable uh, approach uh, to, this, uh, to that situation, which is now resolved uh, locally for them. And yeah, so they've been I doing it, it, but now they're supported yes. doing it. Yeah, more or less. And I can understand it from their point of view because all those 
not uh, accounts which, which aren't in interesting in the Office 365 uh, directory. Yeah, makes it a lot easier if they only can pinpoint the the set of accounts they wanted to synchronize, and that it makes the job a lot easier. Uh, I suppose it means you can also get support for test tenants as well if if you maintain a test tenant alongside your production one and are paying for uh, a, a smaller proportion of licenses uh, I've uh, had trouble getting the limits raised on Dersync for test tenants uh, so had to filter to a, a smaller number of OUs uh, especially when the customer has got the same number of objects in both directories yeah and maybe that's the reason they support it now because they got too many customers who created cases to uh, to raise the uh, the amount of uh, the maximum amount of objects which can be uh, synced. So moving on, uh, there's a more general topic that I wanted to to chat to some of you about, and that's uh, something that was brought up uh, again to me recently. And that's when a customer has a multi-site DAG, a single DAG, but active databases in both sites. For example, if they've got two main offices with users in and they want to have active databases on both sides of the same DAG. What do people think about that in general? Well, most of the time people think magic will happen if uh, servers for trip over or the uh, site outage uh, occurs and yeah they are confusing um, uh, the, the purpose of the of the deck and expectations set by the one who designed it I think um, what to expect of the system when server uh, or site outage occurs in that situation yeah Michelle I think it is a it's definitely a a very big flaw in a design isn't it well, I don't want to call it the flaw. It's if you're expecting. It's working as it's working as designed. So I think it's uh, managing expectations at the customer. Uh, um, well, by a flaw in I don't mean a flaw in the design by Microsoft. Uh, a flaw in the design of the implementation, uh, where someone someone's designed this and went, oh, you know, if we lose one site or we lose the link between the sites, well, we'll still be able to have people accessing mail because we've got active databases on each site. Yeah, that's the, I've, that's met, the uh, I've met those customers who expected that the other um, surviving site remain, can re uh, remain working, but as you and I know, that's not, uh, that's not the case. Um, yeah. yeah, but the problem is then caused by the one designed it and explained it to the customer and, yeah, who probably tried to explain it to the customer but, but doesn't know how it really works because... Yeah, if you know the concept of it, then you, then you, then you don't uh, make this um, this kind of uh, decisions. Or the decision is made too fast without thinking good enough about it, that's also an option. I mean, at its simplest, what what's going to happen uh, is that uh, if you've got uh, this DAG with, two, with active databases across both sites, if that's designed properly, you're going to want to make sure that you don't get split brain. And that's right, isn't it? Where both sides uh, of the, the DAG are cut off from each other 
and uh, ARUP both think that they should be active uh, and have mounted all the databases. And theoretically, that shouldn't happen if you've got the right safeguards in place, like using database activation coordination and having a file share witness in your primary site. Well, I saw that um, there are some customers who uh, went to Exchange 2010 from the very first uh, release, uh, RTM, where DAG mode uh, wasn't supported in all scenarios. So there's a, a difference in the designs of the first edition of Exchange 2010 and what was later added function, uh, regarding functionality, which made designs better or, and people were more aware of the, um, the implications of their design. Yeah, and it's always important as the designer of the environment to explain to the customer what are the risks of specific things and how, they, how it really works. Because most customers, are, yeah, they will um, depend on the uh, on the guy who, who designed Exchange or the company who, who designed Exchange. So as a consultant, it's important to know how it really works and what are the advantages and disadvantages of um, some setups. And so you can um, give your customer good advice on why uh, why to choose for some things or why not to choose for. Uh, specific options. So if uh, if a customer came to either of you guys, Michelle and Joanne, and said, right, I've got the I've got two uh, data centers and I want to have active databases in both. I want to make sure that if one of the sites fails uh, that I can activate databases in the other and I want to make sure that if there's a, a loss of connectivity then users uh, in the offices connected to those two data centers won't be impacted. What would you say? Would you say go for a, a single DAG or multiple DAGs? Uh, what, what would your advice be? I'd recommend going for uh, the, the second DAG to let the other population in the other side survive uh, outage uh, on the other side and vice versa. Um, and most of the times I can uh, defend it because it also means uh, additional hardware, IP um, addresses, etc. So it, it's not uh, a, a simple decision and which you can implement right away. No. But for, for certainly for larger environments, it's uh, you can you can defend the decision and defend the reasons why to do it that way. Um, so yes, yeah, most of the times not an issue. Uh, where it is an issue is most of the times in restricted budget situations and they have to choose which people are more important than other people in the company uh, and the decision would be right let's pick and that, one and, data and center that's not my as decision. our primary yeah, yeah and that, then, it's, then you start talking about primary and secondary uh, data centers and it's yeah, easier to discuss than data center A, data center B and that's also the decision where to put the uh, file share witness uh, and stuff like that. So it's it's um, yeah a natural kind of thing to discuss. Uh. And file share witness is the uh, the other question that that gets asked: uh, where to put it? Uh, should it be in a third data center with connectivity to both, uh, or should it be uh, sitting by your primary data center DAG nodes? 
and it's a vote in your uh, DAG setup, so put it in your primary data center. Exactly, I, I, I totally agree. And with what that. Microsoft recommends is put it on a, on a hub server because it's an element of the, the email infrastructure. Yeah. That's why, but I also see it uh, being put on a, file, a normal file, uh, file service, but yeah, don't see any point in uh, trying to get, it, uh, get them to put it on one of the servers because also many of the servers nowadays are uh, multi-role servers so, so there's um, the transport servers nowadays is also doing other stuff well so exactly uh, if you don't have a dedicated hub transport server especially if it's just a couple of DAG nodes with a load balancer yeah then you have to pick uh, a piggy or no yeah that's it Try, trying to pick the right server uh, it's 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 kind of okay if it's a virtual environment and they've got data center licenses, uh, because yeah. then you can just throw up a, a your file share witness server. Uh, I, I wouldn't go for DFS though uh, as a, a file share, and I wouldn't go for uh, a NAS box either. Uh, I don't believe that it's it's one hundred percent supported to use you know Solera or a NetApp as your file share witness. Also, um, um, regarding the, 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 the start of the discussion on uh, misconceptions and stuff, I thought um, but it's a bit a while ago that uh, Scott Schnall uh, uh, blocked something about misconceptions regarding DAGs yeah. and uh, clusters. And also one of the things I saw uh, actually in the field was people uh, assigned uh, alternate file share witnesses, um, thinking that they would of do... Of course, yeah. Ex ex actually do something when the failover occurred. Yeah, and that really that's more relevant <laughs> to our active primary uh, data center where uh, where the primary and the secondary data center have the alternate file share witness for the secondary and you use it when you manually activate that other data center. Uh, it's, it's not something that's used automatically. Uh, I, no. I, I had a customer say, I've seen this field, you know, shouldn't, sh shouldn't we have filled that in? Uh, shouldn't, shouldn't we have stuck a, a second one just in case? Uh, and as you say, no, it, that's not how it works. It's it is for manual activation. It's it's just a, a small time saver because the share is there, the the permissions are there, and you can um, make it into the the new file share with, uh, witness when you're doing a site failover. That's it. Yeah, but you see it in a lot of environments where customers do complicate as you already mentioned. Customers do think it's, oh, it pops up automatically and it will work, etc. Yeah. That's, that's also something you, you need to, to record in your uh, procedures. If you need to do a site failover, you need to record the, the procedure to activate it and how to activate it and if not configure it, how to configure it because yeah, you will see a lot of customers um, who think that they understand it, but yeah, don't understand really. So, yeah, leave leave a procedure with uh, with your customers so um, so they 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 can use it in case uh, they really need it. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, I uh, as a consultant you want to work into the design uh, and testing so that process is documented for their environment. And as and uh, if you're doing this yourself, then yeah, you, it's. You don't want to be relying on the TechNet documentation when you've actually got to do this failover before you put things into production. 
you're going to be doing your testing on uh, the performance of your environment. You're going to be building it up. And after then, when you've built things up and you're testing things actually work, the, then I think that's when you test your, your failover as, as best as you can anyway, uh, especially if it's going to go into your, your disaster recovery uh, procedures. I agree with that. Yes. So multi-site DAGs, active in one data center, passive in the other. That's the, the key thing. If you need multiple sites that are active, then either if your budget doesn't allow it, pick your best site and have that as the primary one, or split your DAG and have uh, and have two DAGs, one primary in one data center and one primary in the other. Uh, and your file share witness should stay in the same data center as your primary DAG nodes. And that's most of our exchange uh, topics. Uh, and I think we're going to move on to Link now uh, with a, a little bit of exchange. But really, it's all about Link TMG uh, Publishing Exchange Web Services. And I'm going to introduce you guys to Justin and Starle. Hi, both. Hey, thanks, Dave. Uh, Justin, you wanted to talk about uh, best practices uh, with Starle uh, about publishing AWS. Uh, through TMG um, and UAG? Yeah, sure. So um, we wanted to talk a bit about um, both Exchange Web Services and uh, the Link uh, web service requirements and how we make those available publicly um, via the reverse proxy. So um, typically, I mean, Microsoft doesn't make a product recommendation as to which uh, what you need to use um, to make these web services available, but typically, um, you know, us as consultants and, you know, the lay of the land is that we use uh, Microsoft Forefront TMG yeah. to make uh, the web services available publicly. Um, you can use uh, things like um, uh, checkpoint firewalls and uh, F5 uh, BYP devices and things like that, but um, TMG is, is generally... Um, one of the, the most common deployment scenarios. And what I wanted to touch on here was uh, what the best practices are around publishing uh, the type of link deployment you have internally. So yeah. you've got a standard edition server, um, a front-end pool with multiple uh, front-end servers, um, or if you've got a, uh, a director server pool thrown into the mixer as well. And I mean, typically, what we talk about is if you've got a standard edition server or a single front end yeah. pool with multiple uh, front end servers, it's it's quite a simple process to publish uh, the web component requirements of those because you'll just uh, take your um, uh, external web services URL um, and your simple URLs, so like meet.domain.com, uh, dialin.domain.com, um, and linkdiscover.domain dot com for mobility and uh, you'd set up a web publishing rule on TMG um, and point that straight to either the IP address of the standard edition server or yeah. the, um, the virtual IP address that corresponds to the hardware load balancer in front of the uh, the front end pool. And is that using SSL offloading and everything like that in TMG of course? Uh, yeah, so what TMG will do is it'll uh, it'll bridge the connection from uh, 443 that it responds to on its public IP address and bridge that across to 4443 so that um, it sends it to the external website that's running on IAS um, on the, uh, the front-end servers there. So then Link can understand that that traffic it's received has been from an external source. 
So in general, what uh, do you want to tell us why you think TMG is better than using just any old reverse proxy, uh, whether that be uh, expensive devices or even things like Squid and uh, Apache? Uh, well, TMG is a good solution today because uh, it does provide um, network intrusion uh, inspection sort of thing. So yeah. it'll do it'll do um, IPS and IDS to a certain extent. So it will detect and prevent certain uh, certain malicious attacks and um, vulnerabilities that will come in from the external interface. Uh, there's actually on the TMG out of the box is what it will do is. Uh, periodically check uh, Microsoft update servers for um, definition updates to check proactively against um, new vulnerabilities that uh, that server may come under um, attack from. So it's a, it's quite a uh, hardened um, server in that respect and obviously detect against um, denial of service like ping of death, all those kind of traditional attacks as well. Um, and we're seeing sometimes where uh, organizations will ask for that extra layer of defense uh, when you're sending that uh, HTTPS traffic uh, from the DMZ and into the internal network. And as goes TMG, domain joined or not domain joined? Uh, it's, it doesn't really matter, Steve. Um, I mean, because by default we're not doing any of the authentication at that level. We're just passing the SSL traffic straight through after we've um, decrypted it and inspected it. Um, it's sort of, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I've I've done deployments when it's been uh, both, and it hasn't had a bearing on um, on the functionality. Yeah, but um, if uh, you are going to publish a link externally, you also want to publish um, uh, Exchange web services externally and auto discover, and um, that there is uh, where you have um, a difference when uh, TMG is domain joined or not, because um, if you're going to um, use single sign-on or if uh, the link client when it signs on to the exchange web services uh, you may get prompts uh, if you are using basic authentication um, and um, so uh, in regards to when you deploy link uh, we often uh, we, um, uh, we often need to troubleshoot why the users get uh, exchange authentication pop-ups and um, uh, what I um, learned uh, even though I'm not um, a TMG guy uh, you need to actually think about uh, how you um, deploy uh, your uh, TMG server yeah and there's a, another consideration there as well uh, with how you make Exchange web services with the auto discover URL available because um, some companies tend to uh, make their own URL uh, format for how they make Exchange web services available, um, or they don't make it available at all, and they will lock down things like Active Sync from an external source and use another product like uh, Good, which is like a sort of sandboxed um, email application on iPhone, that kind of thing, and that can pose some problems for Link because it's going to um, automatically create autodiscover.sip domain based on the SIP URI you put into Link. So you need to make uh, autodiscover.sipdomain.com you know, available externally, published by TMG or, or whatever. And there can be some um, uh, questions and limitations around that about how you filter based on um, 
request types and things. Well, you don't. Well, you don't have to publish all the paths, do you? For a start, you, you don't have to publish ActiveSync. You don't have to publish OWA. You don't have to publish Outlook anywhere uh, unless you want to. You can just publish the paths for EWS uh, and AutoDiscover, uh, and even just restrict it to the the certain users. Pre-authentication on it would be fine in my book. Yeah, but that brings in another risk because uh, some uh, some clients, mostly the, the Mac clients, such as uh, Outlook, are using EWS to uh, retrieve their mail and send their mail. So if you don't enable Outlook anywhere and you you publish uh, EWS and you don't do any uh, filtering, those clients will be able to um, yeah to pull uh, all the content of their mailbox to their home machines. Uh, what I was getting at was a scenario where, uh, it's just in a sense, they're not publishing that sort of stuff outside, and that's a concern. Yeah, well, well, uh, we, we've got one customer, um, yeah, who 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 fought, uh, yeah, which didn't use the uh, Outlook Anywhere feature. And they didn't want used to have um, the, the content of their mailbox in their on their private machines. So once he saw the in the EWS logs, he uh, he saw some uh, Mac clients connecting via EWS and saw that they were pulling out uh, all the mail content. He was not not very happy, and we built a solution on the Exchange uh, side to um, block all those clients and only allow specific clients, such as the outer clients on the the local network, but also the uh, the link client. Yeah. Uh, how did you go about doing that then? Well, you can use um, um, filtering on the uh, on the Exchange server. Yeah. And you can create a blacklist and a list. So what we did is we um, and the, the the comment has some st standard parameters for uh, the the Outlook uh, agent and the Entourage yeah. agent. For, for both Mac and uh, the Outlook for both Mac and Windows. So that and we, so that this wouldn't stop someone really determined if they wanted to if that if they had the skills to change the user agent uh, to EWS. But for for most people who casually want to hook up their Mac at home, it's going to stop that from happening. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, if you are really handy, you can yeah you can you can bypass it. But yeah. Most most people in companies don't know how to do it, so it's more um, yeah trying to prevent it. But yeah, you know, yeah, you always know that there might be some user who's uh, messing up with things and yeah, get it working by changing the agent. Yeah, but um, and. Keeping that in mind, um, from a link perspective, we, um, uh, my uh, advice to customers is to uh, publish uh, Outlook Anywhere and um, uh, configuring AutoDiscovery correct so you have the full feature link client uh, externally as well as internally. Yeah, but some clients do not want the Outlook Anywhere feature to be available. So yeah, I understand that. So, so it's, it's, only, uh, it's a only predicament. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it's only an issue in that that scenario. But probably yeah, like you. some of you, I I think I I would always try and push for that feature to be available, uh, because Outlook Anywhere uh, is is an absolutely great feature. 
Yeah, there's, there's also a consideration there. Like, um, totally see where you're coming from in that some orgs don't want to make um, auto-discover available externally and they want to maybe keep everything over VPN or keep things locked down by a GPO or something like that. But um, the Link Mobile client is hard-coded to go to auto-discover yeah. at sipdomain.com. Uh, and if you don't make that available publicly, then you get this little yellow warning that keeps popping up in the Link Mobile client. says, cannot connect to Exchange. And that can be like a real sort of like uh, you know, image impact thing on the, the quality of, of Link and people go, why are we getting this error? And it's, well, because, you know, we have an architected exchange to make it available based on what is the recommended um, public access scenario, you know? Yeah, and uh, it's always uh, us Link guys getting the blame. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've installed Link, but now it doesn't work, and it's uh, and it's all your guys' fault. Yeah, it, we didn't have those pop-ups before. <laughs> so, how how do you usually approach it then? Uh, do you uh, do do you make sure that the customer uh, looks at this up front? Is this part of the the prep work that you'll do uh, when you're you're building them a design? Of course, uh, and uh, I always push for. Uh, as much as f uh, features being the same internally as well as externally. So the for the user, it's uh, the same experience. Yeah, I mean, whenever we get into the design phase um, with our clients, we make it very um, apparent straight up that we say we, we require full Microsoft recommendation, rec Microsoft recommended exchange web services publishing. So those need to be available based on the, uh, the URLs recommended. Yeah, and, and typically when uh, the customer has deployed their uh, ex um, virtual directories themselves, uh, it's uh, usually it's misconfigured. So uh, we need to go in and, uh, and tell them uh, how to configure it and uh, also help them uh, fix it. So it, it works with the link as well as um, uh, the existing exchange stuff. So it sounds like what people could do with then is is more scripts to to monitor usage of things like AWS, so people can be identified who are hooking up Mac clients and uh, and dealt with in a in a proper way, rather than trying to uh, craft the technology to 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 fit the situation. Uh, because someone who's who, who's hooking up any sort of device to to business networks. Uh, it's probably not just uh, using their Mac to download mail that, that the business should be worried about. So still on the same topic as TMG, moving on. Uh, there's been rumours going around for quite a long time that TMG is going to be no more uh, over the next year or two. Uh, there's not going to be a, a TMG 2013. I, I think that's that's going to be a sad day. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. That because uh, TMG is uh, really the preferred uh, way of publishing uh, uh, Microsoft uh, uh, tools like uh, Exchange and Link and SharePoint. So uh, it's easy and uh, it's, uh, it, it know, we know what to do when publishing it. Yeah. So, and that's great. Yeah, I think Microsoft are, are sort of pushing everybody down more the UAG route and like... Um, this sort of like single box that's going to sit on your um, on your DMZ and be the complete like in and out box, you know. So like everything coming into the network and uh, everything going out is going to be through the UAG, you know. And the story for publishing um, 
uh, link web services via UAG today is um, is is not pretty. But under the hood with UAG, you've got TMG there. It's, do, do you think they'll replace that with something completely different, or just throw the code into UAG entirely? Uh, I'm no uh, TMG or UAG guy, but uh, as I understand, uh, uh, the UAG is more as a portal uh, publishing server, and uh, there is a TMG in uh, at the core of the UAG, but uh, it's uh, stripped down and uh, a lot of features are disabled. And uh, right now for UAG, you can't uh, actually publish Link Mobile. Uh, with uh, supported configuration. So UAG... And, uh, UAG stands for uh, Unified uh, Access Gateway. Yeah, we were just prompted by our wonderful producer, Dave, to, to mention that because uh, it's not something that uh, I see uh, a lot in the field. I, I say that. I'm, I'm uh, working on uh, doing some publishing with one on Monday, but I don't see UAG a lot. Uh, so if you're not familiar with it, they're both part of the Forefront family. Uh, and UAG is the, the top end uh, product, and TMG, Threat Management Gateway, is the the, the firewall and reverse proxy type product. Yeah, and the, and the pricing of the UAG is uh, quite another ballpark than uh, the TMG. Um, I think it's 10 times more uh, for the license for a UAG. So, that, so, um, so people are going to start looking at other products then, really, aren't they? Uh, if they just need yeah. something to publish, link and exchange. Uh, they, yeah. And they've bought into all these things that we, we talked to them about, like uh, uh, publishing everything externally. So you've got secure access through uh, Outlook Anywhere. Uh, you've got uh, link working externally as well. That What do they need UAG for, for 90% for of the business? I think a lot of it's um is it UAG does some stuff for uh, direct access. Well, exactly. Yeah, direct access, uh, and uh, you you have this portal server where you can publish um, um, parts of your internal um, sites. Yeah. Um, uh, like Citrix have. Yeah, I was about to say Citrix uh, access gateway. Yeah, similar kind of concept then. Yeah. So I have a customer now um, uh, evaluating uh, Big IP as their only reverse proxy and firewall and load balancing solution. And uh, we were looking into um, uh, the supportability for Link and uh, Exchange. And uh, Link actually works fine. Uh, checked out uh, that out. And um, uh, Brian Ricks has blogged about it as well. And uh, for exchange, uh, you can even do pre-authentication soon with um, uh, with um, the Big IP. So uh, you can um, actually get um, uh, more features uh, on um, uh, the Big IP and uh, feature like uh, like TMG. Uh, but it's. Uh Big IPs, uh, a different sort of ballpark price range, at least to, to my understanding. Yeah, um, and um, if you have a bigger uh, scenario where you have load balancing as well, uh, then maybe uh, it could be a good solution. I don't know of any third-party cheap solutions. Anyone? Uh, third-party? Yeah, that's uh, easy to deploy and uh, for a reverse proxy. There's like um uh, like checkpoint firewalls and blue coat and things like that as well. And I've heard some customers 
using uh, squid to some level of success as well. Yeah. The problem is that we don't understand the GUI and interface and how to configure it, so we are more relying on uh, existing uh, competency. Uh, I mean, with uh, with Link, with the publishing for that, I've I've not used uh, Squid. I've used Apache's Reverse Proxy module, uh, and I thought it worked pretty well. It wasn't something I'd want to use for Exchange, uh, but uh, I was able to uh, send requests to different places based on the the host name. Uh, uh, within Apache's uh, own modules and use multiple certificates uh, I, I could get this uh, on fairly easily uh, and decide what paths I wanted to publish as well and I couldn't see anything wrong with that setup but it's, uh, it's not something that your average Windows guy can do out of the box uh, even, even web-based interfaces like Webmin for, for Linux uh, don't give you uh, ease of access for publishing uh, as a reverse proxy for Squid or uh, Apache. And when it comes to Exchange, Outlook Anywhere doesn't work correctly with it anyway. So uh, it's TMG doesn't have many alternatives out there apart from the, the big expensive ones by the sound of it. Uh, and we're going to have a, a big gap uh, to, to try and fill. Uh, is there anything in Link 2013 that's going to alleviate this at all, or is is the topology exactly the same? No, the, the, the topology is exactly the same. Um, there's no changes uh, in web publishing uh, web publishing methodology at all. So, I think I mean there was a point in time when TMG had come out and people were still using uh, ISIS server. So, you know, people are still going to. Uh, continue to use TMG for a while yet, and you know it might be in sort of extended support um, realm as well. So it's not as if it's going to be completely cut off, you know, at one day, and we're going to be left up a creek. So. So it's going to be the Outlook 2003 of firewall products then. Yeah, seems like it's. Uh, but it, but it's it's going to be be harder to recommend uh, at the point when it it's not going to be replaced and it's just an extended support. Uh, it. It, it seems hard if it if there's not a replacement within the, the next year and it goes into extended support. It seems like it's going to be a hard product to, to recommend. We're going to need to start looking around for alternatives or, or, or revising the way we, we do things, uh, especially on yeah. the exchange front. I was dreaming once that uh, maybe they put uh, the re reverse proxy stuff link on uh, the link edge server or something, but... Uh, it doesn't seem to happen within the first uh, release. That would be logical, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. But uh, since there is no official communication from Microsoft regarding what's happening to TMG, maybe they are uh, holding off. Yeah, maybe, the, maybe they'll have a change of heart uh, and we'll, we'll see a, a, a wonderful announcement uh, in the next few months. Who knows? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think it's going to be like it's going to be totally fine for tons of people that have um, like F5 infrastructure deployed in their yeah. internal and um, external networks to say, "Yep, that's fine. We're going to use the F5s for publishing um, AWS and, and link URLs. Yeah. Go ahead, no worries." But the smaller orgs that don't have like any load balances at all, um, let alone those on the internet-facing networks, are going to be definitely presented with a challenge. Uh, and we're talking, you know, two hundred to a couple of thousand users, that sort of size, uh, where they yeah, they, I mean, they don't need a, a big exchange or link infrastructure. 
and that and that one or two TNG boxes sit there and do the job pretty nicely. Yeah, exactly. And our final topic of today, uh, we're coming back to troubleshooting tools in Link, uh, in particular troubleshooting tools in Link 2013. Uh, and Justin uh, wanted to talk about the centralized logging in Link 2013, didn't you? Yeah, so this is um, a really worthwhile topic to talk about, Steve, because um, there's been quite a significant change in the way that you diagnose and troubleshoot issues in Link um, in the next version in 2013. Because today in 2010, um, we can use the, the built-in logging tool that comes with Link 2010 um, in conjunction with uh, the Snooper application that comes with the resource kit to be able to capture um, uh, logs and um, activity that's going on underneath the covers uh, and a vast range of um, different data points. So um, we can capture things at the SIP level, we can capture things that's happening with the address book, capture things that's happening with response groups, all this kind of thing, CMS, um, for varying different uh, levels of intensity, you know, from informational level to debug level, that kind of thing, um, with the logging tool. And then play that back uh, in uh, the in the snooper application and, and see what's happening and so that's really um, familiar to a lot of admins and IT pros today within link 2010 um, and that's all going to change in link 2013 where we're going to be moving to this uh, centralized logging model uh, where a, uh, a process called the uh, centralized logging controller is going to run uh, as a, an interface on a server and the way this will work is it's going to be command line driven and uh, you'll start a logging scenario based on uh, the behavior that you want to, um, you want to log on um, and then reproduce the problem and then uh, stop the logging and then uh, go through the logs that way. So it's going to be quite a significant change from the way that uh, guys are used to uh, troubleshooting their issues today. Yeah, and um, actually it's a, uh, in one way it's a good thing because uh, usually when you have an issue you need to uh, enable logging on all your involved servers, being the front-end director, uh, edge server, um, mediation server, regarding uh, what kind of problem we were troubleshooting. So this is actually a good change. But um, as you said, uh, it's a command line tool and not a PowerShell tool. And that's uh, a lot of people are uh, reacting to that uh, since they're going back to uh, command line. Uh, how how do you feel about that, uh, Justin? Yeah, it's, it's it steps away from this whole model of let's use PowerShell for everything to drop back to the same realm of like uh, the AB server application, you know, to control pieces under the hood from this like application that doesn't feel um, like a first class citizen, you know. If it was something that was it was built in as a commandlet. Um, I would feel a lot more comfortable that this was something that was uh, considered um, uh, within the core development of, of the product. Um, so it's it's a bit away from um, from what people may expect or um, get used to. But as you said, uh, it's good because it's going to be centralised. So uh, gone are the times when you may be experiencing an issue with a bunch of users and you may have to turn on logging all at once across four or five front end servers. You could say turn on the centralized logging uh, uh, session based on the, uh, the issue you're seeing. So if it's um, audio and video conferencing issue, you could just say start scenario audio video conferencing issue, reproduce the problem, um, stop it, and then get all the logs from all the servers and um, check all those out. So there is definitely some benefits for this. 
Yeah. Uh, and um, actually, um, Randy Wintle, which is uh, a Link MVP, uh, he has created a PowerShell script to uh, initiate those command uh, command line tools. So uh, it's in uh, a beta at the moment, and um, and uh, for myself, I think I'm going to use this PowerShell script uh, instead of. Uh, accessing it through uh, the command line and we'll put that script up on the, the website or a link to it anyway and talking of website links uh Stoller, you've got uh, a great blog post uh that people need to see really don't they uh, if they want to get a, a bit of a roundup on link 2013 yeah um as uh, last time when uh Link 2010 was uh, in uh, beta, public beta and uh, around the RTM times. There were a lot of good blog posts about people blogging, uh, uh, features explained and how-tos and uh, uh, troubleshooting issues they came up to. So um, instead of competing with all those uh, these great blog posts, I try to collect um, uh, the blog posts I see uh, throughout the internet and uh, on um, on my blog. So um, uh, I have um, uh, made it into uh, different parts. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of people have talking about the features and explaining the new features, uh, especially the most popular feature to talk about uh, I see is the um, persistent chat, which is... Uh, Got now a real workover in uh, in Link 2013, so uh, got a lot of uh, how tos and uh, different deployment models for um, the persistent chat, and uh, also see some troubleshooting uh, articles as well. So um, if you want to uh, get an overview of what's available out there by bloggers. Uh, I recommend uh, going to this uh, post. And is that something? And I even li uh, I even linked the UC Architects podcast uh, for hey. uh, when we when we talked about Link uh, 2013. And is that something you're going to keep updated so people can just revisit that URL to to find anything else interesting? Yeah, of course. Um, uh, just updated updated it today, uh, and uh, I will keep updating it um, uh, as often as I can following on Twitter and uh, blog, blog roles and uh, stuff like that. I think that's going to be something I'll keep an eye on, especially when my new lab hardware comes and I get my hands on Link 2013 myself. Uh, so thank yeah, you very much for that. Yeah, well, I hate uh, searching the web uh, around for articles I know are there, but I don't have the correct uh, search uh, phrase to find it uh, fast. So this is why I do it. Yeah, often once I know what I want to find, I can I can search for it easily. But when I don't know what the answer is, uh, I never find what I want. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, for uh, unless you've been following everything very closely, and uh, I've been following the exchange stuff a, a lot more than the the link stuff. Uh, that sounds absolutely fantastic. So we'll put a, a link up to your post on the website, and if you're listening, you should. Uh, give it a, a quick look and see whether it answers any of your questions. Uh, the persistent chat one, uh, I'll be reading all of those because that is something that uh, at least the last week on the project I've been working on, uh, I could have really done with persistent chat features. And don't forget, that was discussed in episode four as well. Uh, so 
That's pretty much it for today's show. And I would love to thank my co-hosts. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Joanne, Justin, Michelle, Stole, for joining us on the show. And thank you very much to our producer, Dave Stork, uh, for uh, keeping us on track, keeping us on topic, and reminding us when we're chatting on far too long for things. And thanks very much to our editor, Michael, uh, who's uh, in the seat again. I had his job last week, and it was uh, a long job, and I don't envy it. And thank you very much to you listening at home or in the car or wherever you're listening to us. Uh, we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online, so visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com or follow us on Twitter at The UC Architects. And we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash the UC Architects and of course on LinkedIn with our LinkedIn group the UC Architects podcast episodes if you don't know are available on the iTunes store the Zoom marketplace and you can subscribe in your favourite RSS client like Outlook so check out our websites for everything that we've talked about in the show today and thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again with Pat Richard hosting in episode 6 